Alrighty, everybody. Civil procedure. We only have a couple more episodes. I'm going to say two episodes is all we have left. I could break it up into three, but I think I'm going to leave it at two. So today we are talking, continuing our discussions on complex litigation. Uh, so far in complex litigation, we've talked about several things, uh, specifically about joining, uh, joining of claims and parties. And we talked also about how counterclaims go into that. And we talked about third-party claims with the in-pleader rule underneath Rule 14. Today, we are going to be focusing on complex joinders and whether or not a party should or needs to be included and what happens if you can't include them. And that process is going to be underneath Rule 19. Underneath Rule 19, if a party needs to be included but can't be included, well, then a case may need to be dismissed. And there's a three-part analysis that we need to determine to see if this case needs to be dismissed or not. Step one is going to be deciding whether the absentee party, uh, that's the party who's not originally sued, is a required party to actually be included in the litigation. For step two, the court's going to determine whether joining that party is feasible. And step three is going to be deciding whether to dismiss the case if that party can't join or to continue with the litigation if that party can't join and what would be the best remedy debating on whether or not that feasibility is not available. So how did these three parts work? What do the courts consider for each of these things? Well, step one, when it comes to deciding whether the absentee per um, party is a required party in the litigation, courts are going to examine whether the absence uh, would fail to complete relief for any of the existing parties, and whether the absence would either impair the ability and to protect the interests of those involved in the claims, or if it leads to another party being responsible for more than they're worth. That's going to be a big uh, discussion when we come to our case, Torrington Co. versus Yoast. For the determining whether joining is feasible, so if the court determines, yes, this is a required party, they're going to ask, is joining feasible? Joining is not going to be feasible if there's a lack of personal jurisdiction, or more importantly and specifically, if it destroys complete diversity in a federal court, uh, so if subject matter jurisdiction is unavailable. So this is a required party that feasibility is not available. Should we continue with the case or should we dismiss this case for it to be tried in a different court? Well, the court's going to examine four factors, whether there's a potential risk of prejudice against any existing parties from dismissal, whether dismissal uh, whether there's other ways to lessen that prejudice other than dismissal, whether a judgment in the absence of that party is going to be adequate, and whether there are any other adequate remedies available if this case does end up being dismissed. And so this leads us to our case Torrington Co. versus Yoast. Ultimately, this was a situation Torrington Co. employed Yoast. Yoast left and went to work for another company, and Torrington Co. is suing Yoast, saying, hey, you took trade secrets, and you're giving them to that other company. And Torrington Co. So sued Yoast in a federal court. This is a state law issue. Torrington and Yoast are different parties, but uh, different domiciled uh, in, um, parties. 
And the company that Yost went to work for is the same domicile as Torrington. So let's walk through the analysis real quick just for this case. First is this third party, a required party that was originally not sued in this situation. Well, yes, because if Yost uh, loses, they're going to be held more liable uh, to both agreements from Torrington Co. and this new company. So they're going to be held more liable. And the new company also has a sufficient interest in this litigation that is necessary for them to determine how much liability goes towards who. As far as whether joining is feasible, I already mentioned Torrington and this new company, this is a state law claim in a federal court, and their domiciles would be the same. That means there's no complete diversity, and as a result, joining is not feasible in a court. And as far as the third goes, dismissal is appropriate here because this can be refiled in a state court and should be refiled in a state court. So what's our big takeaway from Rule 19? Ultimately, Rule 19 is used rarely. It's rarely appropriate. Most of the time, uh, the it's only this fact pattern when it's going to be applied. Otherwise, Rule 14 is going to apply to bring in the defendant as an impleader. And that leads us to our second case for which is Temple versus Synthes Corp, where they tried to use Rule 19 to dismiss a case against them. But the court said, no, you can't dismiss this case because you could have just brought in the third party themselves. They contributed to the injury, and as a result, you would be less liable. They're partly liable to you. This is the derivative liability. Rule 14 should apply in this situation. So our big takeaway from this case, Temple versus Synthes Corp, is most of the time Rule 14 is going to apply. A couple other things that I want to mention, it's not really, uh, I guess it is part of these complex joinders, uh, is intervention. Uh, intervention is the idea that a party on their own accord can jump into the litigation uh, without the defendant or the plaintiff bringing them in. Intervention what it works, the purpose of it is to allow an interested party, a party who has a stake in these claims, to reserve their legal rights to have those claims heard. So ultimately, it prevents the original parties from settling and thus not considering the rights of what would be that intervening party. So that's the whole purpose of intervention, to allow an intervening party to have their rights heard. And then we have interpleader. Note this is not an impleader, but an interpleader. This rule is set out in 28 U.S.C. 1335. And all it is saying is that if there are multiple potential claimants against a defendant that that defendant is not aware of, then that defendant, sorry, yeah, that defendant can go to a district court uh, to meet their contract with all of those potential claimants, and then the claimants can come to the court and gather their claim. And this prevents the defendant from being uh, liable multiple times to claimants that they would not know of. And a good example of where this is used is insurance companies who are not entirely sure of who all the beneficiaries are. 
And so they don't want to pay out all the money into the one beneficiary and then have a second unknown beneficiary come and claim the same amount. So these interpleaders are allowed to go and put their money into a safe place and for all the claimants to come at the same time and to have the court divvy out that money as it is necessary. So that's really our big, well, that's complex joining. We talked about Rule 19, uh, ultimately when a case should be dismissed um, for a party that should be involved but can't be involved based off of certain situations. It's a rare rule, implied not very often. Most of the time, Rule 14 is going to apply to bring in other parties. And then we just briefly mentioned intervention and interpleader. Have a good one. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Law Schoolers. Before I let you go, there are four things I want to say. The first thing is if you enjoyed these episodes and if you enjoyed the website, I would invite you to go and join Law Schoolers Pro. And you can do that by going to lawschoolers.com slash join. It's a way for you to support us, but there's also a lot of features there that I think you will enjoy. Second thing is that nearly all of our episodes are unedited. The only ones that aren't are pre-law materials. And the reason for that is so you can actually see the legal material in its raw form as I'm learning it as well. The third thing is that the information contained in these episodes are specifically only for educational purposes. They're not to be used as legal advice. And with that, the fourth thing is if it is used as legal advice, we are not liable. That is, law schoolers is not liable for any legal outcomes. Thank you again for enjoying the show. Have a good one.